and welcome to Old Testament in Faith, part of the In Faith series of podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Didek, and this week we're in Genesis 5 and 6. We'll spend a very brief time with the genealogy in chapter 5, but hurrying quickly to chapter 6 and unraveling some of what's happening there. Our theme for the day is going to be avoiding rabbit holes in scripture. Might sound odd, but I think it's important. In that vein, let's get to the episode. Kind of quick but important update this week. I was able to sit and talk with the manager of the trails division at Cleveland Metro Parks and also later one of the trails coordinators who was a friend of mine that I got to work with and ride with and hang out with quite a bit last season and getting really excited about what they're doing there this year and looking fairly certain that I will definitely be back there sometime in March is when it looks like they're trying to start it. So waiting for the exact date to come down. But what that might mean is that the schedule I had for myself through the end of March is going to get altered a little bit, we'll say. But what I want to do is I don't want to leave off all of this stuff for nine months again, if I possibly can. So here's here's what you guys can expect moving forward. The first thing that will be prioritized is finishing the audio version of By Ways Unseen. That I still want to have. It may, it may get pushed back a little bit beyond the end of March, but the goal will still be to whatever time I have either with days off, with evenings after my son goes to bed, recording the chapters, editing them, getting them posted until that is completely done. Anytime after that and time on the weekends and things like that, I'll also spend writing book four. That's the main thing. I don't want to leave that alone for another nine months, like I said, until winter starts again. And that will be that. The podcast will kind of come third at that point. So we're going to get through as much Genesis as we can. In the next several weeks, we've still got a month, and we'll probably have a bit of March as well to get through some of these. Once the audiobook is all the way out there, priority will first be writing book four, and then anytime after that will be recording and editing podcast episodes. So what may end up happening is that you guys will experience a long break. And then what I might end up doing is actually recording a couple episodes in a row and then releasing them on a little bit more regular schedule. You know, so I'll let you guys know how that goes and we'll kind of go from there. So I'm hoping to keep some momentum with the creative stuff as I get back to work. So that's how this spring is starting to shape up. Like I said, for the next month, for at least the whole month of February, everything's proceeding as normal. Starting in March, things will kind of start to to shift a little bit, and I'll be updating you guys as that changes and what things are looking like. So with that, let's get into today's topic. As I said, we're in Genesis 5 and 6. Our guiding verse today is actually going to come from the New Testament. So let's read it really quick. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3-7. through seven. Now, the Timothys are excellent books for those wanting to be teachers and preachers, especially as Paul is writing to a young preacher on ways to conduct his church. So I share this particularly with you to help you understand why I'm doing what I'm doing today. Because it may sound odd given what I've said about the importance of the Old Testament and how critical it is that all Christians everywhere read it. But recall, I've also said that newer Christians should read it with a mentor or a guide of some sort, which in the context of this series of podcasts is what I'm I am trying to be. So let's read 1 Timothy. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. 
What we might find in Genesis 5 and the early parts of 6 can turn into endless genealogies and myths. Whole books have been written based off of chapter 6, verse 4 alone. But we should pay careful attention to Paul's warning in Timothy 1, verse 4. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. It is far too easy to get caught up in the teeny little bits of chapters like Genesis 5, and all that time spent studying and researching and learning could have been far better spent in prayer and growing your faith. Now, there might be some that will say, my faith is enlarged by such careful study of minutia. But is it really? I say this as someone who delights in intellectual pursuits. If anything, my faith is weakened and becomes simple knowledge by careful study of such things. My faith in myself might be greater, faith that I have not made a mistake in my beliefs, and there may be some value in that. But if I'm honest with myself, at the end of studying something so minute, I do not trust God to be God any more or less. Just because I have made some chronology or researched the names of every descendant, do I walk more confidently in who God is and who he made me to be? And so today, what I want to do is skim through chapter 5 rather quickly. We're going to read very little of it together and just touch on a few areas that might trip us up in our pursuit of Christ. I've once again listed the help of Matthew Henry to help me make sure I don't miss something very important. And as we go, I'll be tying back into some of what we read in previous weeks because I do still believe in the utmost of importance in seeing scripture as an interrelated whole. Our first observation comes from Henry in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 5. That scripture specifies Adam was made in God's image, yet Seth was made in Adam's image. So we see that after the fall, the corrupt nature of mankind that Adam and Eve's sin introduced is passed down, not the glorious nature of God. Henry points out, and I think this is valuable, that sin begets sin, but a saint does not beget a saint. Remember, we mentioned last week that even the most godly person or parents do not automatically make the most godly children. It was not through Adam and Eve's firstborn that Christ came, but through the child they had to replace Abel, who had been killed. We could also think of Christ, who was born to replace all the lambs that had been killed through the Old Covenant, that through his life, the rest of us might have life. Second, we today often get weary of how long these chapters, and others like them, can drag on. This person was born, at this age they had this child, and then lived another some hundred years. Then an entire verse dedicated to telling us again how long they lived, and then they died. But notice how God cares for us. We could, on our own, spend the time to add up the years before the child was born and the years after. Or we just read on, and he tells us the sum total of years. And we are reminded, over and over, of the lie Satan had told, You will not surely die. Instead, every single descendant, except one which we'll get to, lived X years, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. Eight times we are reminded of the certainty of death, with one exception, Enoch. Here I have to part from Henry, who mentions that Enoch had a city named after him, but this is not the Enoch that was born to Cain, and here is another important thing to note. Names can be similar, or even identical, down through generations. We can see this especially in the genealogy of Christ given to us in Luke. So this Enoch is not Cain's Enoch, nor is Lamech, the father of Noah, the same Lamech who said to his wives, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times, that we read last week. Although it might be a sign of God's humor that Lamech, the father of Noah, lived 777 years before he died. This Enoch stands alone, I might argue, as the only person in human history who did not die. Certainly he lived the shortest of these patriarchs. 
and I owe this observation to my friend Tyler. It took Enoch 365 years to reach such a level of holiness that he escaped death. So what hope do we have who only live 80 or so years? Instead, our hope for perfection lies on the other side of the grave through Christ. Enoch gave birth to Methuselah, who lived longest and is renowned for being the oldest person ever to have lived. Now, note that Jared, before him, lived 962 years and Methuselah lived 969. So, yes, he holds the record by seven years, but maybe let's not make too much of that. But by living that long, he died the year of the flood. Now, some scholars believe, because surely he was very righteous, that he died before the flood but there's no explicit mention of how holy he was or of exactly when he died, and so it is possible he drowned with the rest of the world. Methuselah's name, which can be translated as there is a dart or there is a sending forth, perhaps prophesies the flood, which means the people of the time would have had 969 years to understand that destruction was coming. Because of this, it appears, when some scholars translate his name as when he dies, something is sent, or death and let fall with purpose, it fits nicely with the idea that he died before the flood. Otherwise, people would still be waiting for his death to see the foretold flood. But let's understand this. Why would you wait until the last minute to repent and turn back to God? We don't know when the final end is coming, when Jesus will return a second and final time, and the chance for redemption is utterly gone. It is very possible God also did not give any other warning than the life of Methuselah, not his death, that people needed to turn back to him. But ultimately, knowing whether he died before or during the flood is pointless and probably doesn't increase our faith. A few final notes in Genesis 5 before we move on. Lamech, in naming his son Noah, recognized the depravity of the world and prophesied that Noah would give them some relief. Lamech then died before Methuselah by a couple years. Then, after he was 500 years old, Noah gave birth to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Interestingly, in Genesis 10 verse 21, it says, Sons were also born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth, indicating the order of birth would have been Japheth, Shem, and Ham. Matthew Henry suggests this order was reversed because Christ would eventually come through Shem. And we see in Noah's blessing in Genesis 9:27, May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. He is cursing Ham, as we'll see later when we get there. But by Japheth living in the tents of Shem, that he is giving Shem the preeminence. But once again, this may be meaningless since the phrase, whose older brother was Japheth, is arranged in the Hebrew this way. Unto Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder, even to him were children born. Depending on where we put the commas, we might understand the brother of Japheth the elder, Instead of the elder modifying Japheth, it might modify the brother, changing it to mean the elder brother of Japheth, and the NIV recognizes this. So what I find more interesting is that Noah blessed Shem more, and tradition holds that Genesis was written by Moses over 1,400 years before Christ. Once again, a lot of modern scholars think it might have been written more in response to Israel's exile in the 6th and 5th centuries. If true, it still means that connections to Christ were written down that did not come to pass for centuries and came true in Jesus. So it doesn't make that big a difference to our faith, or it shouldn't. Regardless of when it was written or why, there is a ton of unity through disparate pieces, indicating indeed a single author, God, the only one who could see beginning from end and move through temporary people to write an eternal story. One final note. Remember, we're studying the Old Testament under the premise that all scripture is God-breathed and useful. So I will be doing an episode where we talk about why these genealogies are in here and what use they may be to us beyond what we've discussed so far. For now, we've still got some tramps to move through and spring from a safe distance, so let's move on to chapter 6. 
Let's together read through verse 8, then spend the rest of our time going back through it. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The sons of God married the daughters of humans. If you are like me, you have heard all your life that this was angels marrying humans, which is why they produced the Nephilim. So it came as quite a shock to me when I began reading Matthew Henry's commentary that he did not even indicate such a thing. Instead, he interpreted this as the descendants of Seth, who followed after God, began marrying the daughters of Cain, who had been driven away. After digging a little deeper, I think Henry missed it. As my friend Tyler is fond of saying, and he's absolutely right, the best commentary, better even than Matthew Henry, is the Bible. So let's look at this a little closer. According to blueletterbible.org, there are 11 instances of the phrase sons of God used in all scripture, Old and New Testament. Five of them clearly use it to reference non-human beings, angels for the most part, but also something else that we'll get to in a second. I expected a change in the New Testament, and in some ways it does, but it actually does not change in a very fascinating pair of verses. So, in Job chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 2, verse 1, what the NIV translates as angels is the same Hebrew words, meaning sons of God, used twice in Genesis 6, saying the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. In Job chapter 38, verses 6 through 7, God says, speaking of the creation of the world, on what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone, while the morning stars sang together, and all the angels, sons of God, shouted for joy? Then, when we get to the New Testament, John chapter 1 verse 12, Romans chapter 8 verse 14, Philippians chapter 2 verse 15, and 1 John chapter 3 verses 1 and 2, use sons of God in a manner that implies us here on earth who believe in Christ. But, Romans chapter 8 verses 18 through 19 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children, or sons, of God to be revealed. So it is something not yet happened. We, as true and complete sons and daughters of God, are not yet revealed, and our immortal, imperishable, non-human bodies have not yet been given to us. And even the first John passage says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So, even hidden in that passage is the recognition that while we can call ourselves children now, what we will eventually fully be is not yet known. We can also compare Jude verse 6 with 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 and find this. In Jude, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Compare Second Peter. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. In the Second Peter passage, he calls attention to three groups of people condemned by God. These angels, 
those destroyed in the flood, and Sodom and Gomorrah. By chronology, we can infer that the angels who sinned were the sons of God in Genesis 6, those who, by the similar wording in Jude, did not keep their positions of authority, but had abandoned their proper dwelling. So what do those two phrases mean? In the Greek, what the NIV translates as positions of authority is a word meaning domain or place of origin. So they did not keep to the place they had been originally or their proper domain. And their proper dwelling that they abandoned? That word that is translated dwelling is only used one other time in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling clearly referring to our glorified non-human bodies, the same ones that the creation groans while waiting for us to be revealed as the sons and daughters of God. So Jude can be read that angels did not keep to their place of origin, but abandoned their proper bodies. We could infer then that they entered a domain and were clothed in a dwelling, capable and desirous of marrying the daughters of humans, the result of which were the Nephilim, great giants, and oppressors. What is unclear still is exactly what this intermixed race would have been like, and I still find it risky for Christians to become too infatuated with the idea and to spend too great a time focused on something that, ultimately, God wiped out completely. I think it is quite safe to assume that anything God eradicates is not something we should offer a lot of non-biblical speculation on. So here's something useful. If Moses is indeed writing this for the Israelites as they prepare to enter the promised land and fight against the descendants of Anak, perhaps he wanted them to remember men had fought against them before and were great heroes for it. We can see something of a literary device in the next verse. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. The greatness of sin compared with the greatness of men of renown. We might read these as, These were heroes of old, men of greatness. God saw, though, that their sin was great. Here, I want to quote Henry directly. He saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Observe the connection of this with what goes before. The oppressors were mighty men and men of renown. And then God saw that the wickedness of man was great. Note, the wickedness of a people is great indeed when the most notorious sinners are men of renown among them. Things are bad when bad men are not only honored, notwithstanding their wickedness, but honored for their wickedness, and the vilest men exalted. Wickedness is then great when great men are wicked. Their wickedness was great, that is, abundance of sin was committed in all places by all sorts of people, and such sin as was in its own nature most gross and heinous and provoking. It was committed daringly and with a defiance of heaven, nor was any care taken by those that had power in their hands to restrain and punish it. It is no difficult thing when great heroes prevail against bullies for the oppressed to honor those great heroes, even if they are utterly sinful. They may not be perfect, but at least they aren't the Nephilim. Here we also want to note in verse 5 that reads, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And when we skip ahead to verse 8, it says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so of all the people still alive, only Noah found enough favor with God to be saved from the flood. When we think back to the idea that Methuselah died before the flood, that God would not have drowned him in the flood with the rest of the evil men because surely he was a godly person. Here is where we see an indication that perhaps this was not the case. God took Enoch and did not let him die because of how holy he was. And Lamech died too at a relatively young age of only 777 instead of the 900 years that most of the other patriarchs were living. 
So while we see no special evidence that Methuselah would have died before the flood and may have indeed died in the flood, let us still remember that it may not matter. So now we come to a very difficult verse. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. How could God, knowing what would happen, regret that he had made us? Regret is for those who don't know what consequences something will bring, and when those consequences come suddenly, we regret our earlier decision. Or when we are older and wiser, and we see the trouble we caused ourselves by making bad decisions, we can regret that. But here is one thing to think of. The word, here translated regret, also sometimes translated repent, comes from a primitive root meaning to sigh or breathe strongly, by implication to be sorry. So perhaps God is sighing not because he had made man, but because of the destruction he was about to bring. His spirit had been striving with men against their sin, working to try to bring them back to repentance. When they did not, even if he knew they would not, he still regretted making them because now he had to bring great destruction against his beloved creation. Compare this verse also to Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 concerning Jesus again. For the joy set before him he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When God brings his wrath against all of mankind, he is deeply sorrowful. When that wrath is instead brought against Jesus for the sake of all mankind, it is a joy not that he will suffer the wrath, the cross was something he had to endure, but that because of it mankind will have the opportunity to escape that wrath. But here in Genesis, there is no escape except for eight people. One really fascinating connection, again, possibly just a literary device, once you start cross-referencing the original Hebrew. The word here translated as regret is nacham, and it's used earlier in Genesis chapter 5, verse 29. And he called his name Noah, which, by the way, means rest, saying, This same shall comfort, nacham, us concerning our work and toil of our hands. So how can regret also be translated as comfort, especially concerning Noah? Consider this. Even though destruction was necessary and foreknown, and though it is obviously unpleasant at the time, it also cleansed the earth for a time and preceded the first covenant between God and man, that he would never again bring such destruction on the earth. Regret can, and should often, be a comfort to us. Without regret, there is no indication that we grasp that what we did was wrong. I'm often fond of saying that if you're still struggling against a sin, you're okay. It is when you stop struggling, when you give up and decide to just continue in the sin, that you are in grave danger. If you worry that you are not saved, good. It is best, obviously, to be fully convinced that you are saved and secure in God's arms, but how much worse to be apathetic, to not care whether you are saved or not. So God's regret is not a regret that he had done something wrong. He is incapable of doing wrong. Godly regret, instead, is a comfort because it moves us from a place of wickedness and wrath to a place of holiness and blessing. I read a quote once that said, Live your life with no regrets because in the end it makes you who you are. Ignoring the horrendous grammar, let's recognize the insidious implication. How are we guaranteed that who we are is a good thing? Apart from God, it is likely not. At the very least, as we've talked about earlier, it is sinful in the strictest sense, even if it is not destructive to society. If you don't regret sin, you won't become more holy. So let's regret the time wasted studying endless genealogies and pursuing myths, and turn from it and read God's word in order to do it to find what is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that we may become fully equipped for every good work. Looks like we might get to speed ahead for a little bit here, so get ready for a recap and some study in Genesis chapters 7 through 9. I encourage you again to read through them before next Saturday, and until then, keep the faith, 
and keep it old school. Music